is part two of our uh, Q&A week. Uh, we started last week uh, with our Q&A uh, time, which is something different that we do a couple times a year. And um, only got one question out of the way uh, last week. It was a big one. And so this week we're dealing with all the rest of them. Jamie's back up here with me today. And, and so that'll be good. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was great. Uh, the good news this week is that our kids go back to school. So <laughs> praise God. That's, that's great. Somebody else can get back to raising my kids for me. That's, that's good stuff. So anyway, that'll, that'll be great. So we're just going to dive in. Uh, the first couple of questions kind of go together. And they are, how do we know all the stories of the Bible are true? And how much of the Old Testament should we follow? All right. So good questions. Um, so it's a complex question. Um, because, and I, I said this last service, a lot of it depends on, and this is going to sound like a real like backpedaling thing to say, but a lot of it really depends on what you mean by true. <laughs> um, and I know that sounds like the answer a president would give if he's being questioned or impeached, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it really is true. A lot of it depends on what you mean by true, because I think when we ask is something true, we have to first establish what is it you mean by that question. Uh, I would say that the entire Bible is true. It's true as a guide for living in our lives, that it is, it is true in that the, the stories that God gives us, the, the lessons, the teachings, the everything is, is, is his truth. It's true, it's true for us. Um, if you mean, when you say is how much of the Bible is true, if you're actually asking how much of it is actual literal history? Well, that, that's a different question. That's a different question. So, um, because the Bible is now, we've talked about this before. The Bible is not just simply a book; it is a library of books compiled together. Sixty-six books in the Bible, and although all of those different books, there's different types of literature. Just as if you'd go down to the Dixon Library today, you would find. Uh, books of history, books of politics and sociology, books of psychology, self-help books, poetry books, fiction books, uh, biographies, autobiographies, children's books, you know, all, all kinds of different genres of literature. You don't read all those genres exactly the same way, and the same thing is true of the Bible. In the Bible, we have books of poetry, we have historical books, we have uh, the Gospels, which are a weird mix of kind of historical uh, biography, but also spiritual teaching. Um, you have uh, the, uh, a lot of letters that were written from different apostles to specific churches. You have apocryphal books, which are these very rich, symbolic, flowery language books that are meant to convey a truth that may not be obvious in just a simple, plain reading of that truth. A lot of symbolism there. Um, all kinds of you know prophecies. Some of those prophecies are projecting things that will happen in the future. Some of those prophecies are, prophecies are just simply good preaching, calling Israel back to faithfulness to God. Um, and so, so when you approach the different books of the Bible, you have to read them according to the type of literature that they are. If you go into a, uh, a book of poetry expecting to get history, then you're going to be confused and disappointed. That's, that's not going to work for you. And so you, you kind of have to know, you know what, you're, what you're reading there. Uh, in, in addition to that, there are certain passages of the Bible, certain stories, especially particularly in the, New, in the Old Testament, 
that are possibly not literal historical accounts, but rather could be stories that God gave us to help us understand truths about himself. So let me give you an example. A lot of people believe that, say, the first oh, around 11 chapters of Genesis uh, may or may not be historical. It could be that those first 11 chapters, which include the stories of creation and the stories of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Noah and the flood and, and uh, you know, some, of, some of those old stories like that, it could be that, that they fall... I, I don't want to use the word legend or mythology because those aren't the right words, but uh, I like to refer to them as a, um, uh, a theological narrative. In other words, a story that was given to us to express certain truths about God. So they are true in that they are the truth that God wanted us to know. Did they actually historically happen? Maybe, maybe not. I, I tend to you know, personally lean on the side of that kind of theological narrative versus actual history of those first handful of chapters in the book of Genesis. If you believe they literally happened the way that it just says, then that's perfectly fine for you to believe that. There's nothing wrong with believing that. And we can still be friends and brothers and sisters, and it's not a, it's not a huge issue. I, but um, So that said, you know, the kind of part two of that question is, how much of the Old Testament should we follow? And I would say all of it uh, with the intent that that. God meant for us to follow, which becomes a little tricky when you start trying to figure out, like, especially like if you get into a book like the book of Leviticus, which is a bunch of laws, regulations and laws and prescriptions for worship and things like that, that a lot of that book is so obviously rooted in the culture of that day and just simply doesn't apply to us in our culture. And, and, and there's, there'll be some of you that are like, I don't know, you call yourselves uh, conservative or whatever you want to call yourself. I mean, I think we're all, most of us in this room, pretty conservative, but um, there'll be some of you that will be tempted to go, no, no, if the Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it. And well, first of all, it should just be the Bible says it and that settles it. Who cares what you believe? Um, and, but, but on top of that, there are Things in the Bible, like, like if you actually tried to live out everything in the book of Leviticus, it would be insane. It would just be insane. Like there are rules about, you know, if it's your wife's time of the month, send her outside the town and for a certain number of days. Like, go ahead, husbands, try applying that. Try it. I dare you. I dare you. See how that goes for you, right? I mean, so there, there are things like, like you know, hygiene laws, and, th- and, and again, and, and, and understandably so, we look at some of those hygiene laws and go, like, why would, why, why would that even be there? And it's because, again, it was written to and for a, a different people in a different time. I mean, if somebody got a fever back during this time, the whole village was basically writing that person off as dead. I mean, you know, I mean, you can go back, and even in our country, you know, a couple hundred years and find the exact same conditions where, you know, hygiene was such a big deal because they didn't understand everything medically and scientifically about the human body that we understand today. And so, I mean, it was just panic. So we ultra careful, ultra conservative, you know, whatever in that way. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, so it, it, it's, it's, like I said, it's a bit of a tricky question. We have to look at, um, well, let, let's use the, the, some of you were, I, I, 
heard that some of you were a little upset by the conversation that happened last week. Our, our question last week that we dealt with was around the issue of uh, homosexuality. And, and, and so in my statements last week were, you can't get away from the fact that the Bible does say homosexuality is a sin. It says it in about three or four different verses in, in both the Old and New Testament. Um, and it just says that. I can't pretend it doesn't say that. The Bible just says what, I can't, you know, that's not the way we treat sacred texts. We don't go into a sacred text and go, I don't like that, rip, and just throw that away. That's not the way we do. But what we can do is have an honest conversation about, okay, let's look at that topic and go, like other topics that we would look at, does that, do we apply that scripture the same today as they applied it 3,000 years ago? And, and so we look at that, and, and, and those are honest conversations to have. And I made a statement and, that just said, you know, the, the, there's this kind of work that we do in interpreting Scripture where we have to occasionally look at issues like that and go, how do we apply that to, the, to our context today? Should it mean the same thing to us as it means today? And those are good conversations to have. Now, does that mean that living hope is going to change our view of sin on that particular issue at this particular junction in time? Probably not. Probably not. Why? Because on a couple of reasons. One, I just don't see the biblical evidence for us to change our stance on that. And two, um, it's a relatively new issue. I mean, this is only a conversation that's really been seriously happening within the last 20, 25 years. Uh, before that, it was a fringe conversation. And so we, I, I talked about how we have to be slow in those changes and conversations. So is Living Hope Stance going to change on this in the next 25 years? Probably not. Is it going to change in the next 50 years? I don't know. Is it going to change in the next 100 years? I don't know. We'll get to that. That'll be for the next generation to deal with, right? But we'll be faithful to it in our context to the best we can. And, but, I, but what we do know is that regardless of what you define as sin or don't define as sin, we are called to a, a dangerous, extreme, soul-stretching love for all people. And if your love for people, or if your, your definitions of what sin is and what sin isn't is, is affecting the way you love people, then that is a misapplication of Scripture. It's a misapplication of Scripture. And so we're called to love. We're called to love. We'll let God sort out what's law and what's not. All right? Um, so anyway, it's a complex issue. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the one little piece I want to add is... For me, the Old Testament has always been something that I've kind of been standoffish with, mostly because it's much harder to understand and, in my opinion, apply, you know, to today and to my regular everyday life. The New Testament is so much easier to read, and it just feels more applicable. But something that I've learned um, in reading the Old Testament um, is simply just the reminder that we get of what God's people went through thousands of years ago is very similar to many of the things that we're going through today and that they tried to be faithful to God, but then they would get complacent and then they would start grumbling and complaining and then they would end up acting like complete idiots and, you know, throw away everything they'd built up their faith for and God would love them and he would forgive them and he would draw them back to him again then they'd start all over. And then usually, you know, it's like over and over and over and over. People falling away from God, rebelling against what he's called them to, and then, you know, either 
they were, you know, blown up, or, or God would, um, you know, he would eventually come and draw them back to them and forgive them again and love them again. And just the idea that all humans can, can probably identify with that, that we, um, we're doing great, we're good in our faith, we're strong, everything's great, and then we come to some period of time where we're rebellious or selfish or we want to do things our way, whatever, and that God is still continuously there. So the truths of the Old Testament and God's love for us remain true, you know, today. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and one more clarifying point that I, uh, a lot of times people will ask me, you know, why do you say these things about scripture that are non-traditional and cause people to kind of messes, messes with their head or messes with their faith or whatever? And, and there, there really is a reason and intention behind that. And it's because, um, you know, early on in, in, as a young man and in, in my early days of ministry, I, I, as a part of several different churches on staff at these churches, um, and, and having learned the things I had learned about Scripture and how we got Scripture, that it, it was, you know, it blew me away when I got to college and learned that the Bible wasn't just this book handed to us by God in this cloudy moment, right? Like, oh, there you go. That it, there was a human, there were humans involved. There was a human process. That there were meetings that church officials had to decide what would be scripture and what would be. And I, in faith, believe they came to the right decision, right? And so, but it was a very human process, guided by God, guided by the Holy Spirit. I believe that. Um, and so, I, but I remember other pastors that I would work for would get to issues around this and dodge it and not not really talk about the truth of how scripture came to be in our hands and things like, and I'd say, why don't, why don't, if this is true and this is, you know, this is accurate, why aren't we teaching this? And every single time I would get a response that was something to the effect of, because the people couldn't handle it. Because they couldn't handle it. That it would, it would destroy their faith to hear this. And so it's best just to keep it simple. And I just, from early on in, in, in my ministry, I just had decided then if I was ever going to be a lead pastor, I wasn't going to be a lead pastor who would sweep facts under the rug. I'm not going to do that. I believe that we're all intelligent enough to come to, come to grips with this stuff, even if it does kind of shake up your preconceived notions and maybe make you a little uncomfortable and things like that. I still think we're intelligent enough and still guided by the Holy Spirit enough to walk through the reality of all this, and it shouldn't have to shake our faith. In fact, for me, I always say it emboldens my faith. It makes my faith stronger knowing facts not just some sort of mythical view of scripture, you know, or whatever. So I, I, so I just present it the way it is. I, and I'll always do that as your pastor. And, and, uh, and, if, I mean, and if you're one of those people that is like, you know, I prefer ignorance is bliss, then I, I promise you there are hundreds and thousands of churches out there where you can get ignorance is bliss. It's just not going to be this one. It's just not going to be this one. And so uh, I, I feel like we're strong enough and the Holy Spirit is strong enough to guide us through all that stuff, and it shouldn't have to rock our faith, okay? So that's that. Um, go ahead. You're next. All right. So this question is, uh, if you divorce, is it okay to get remarried in the eyes of the Lord? This day and age has changed so much since the Bible was written. Can you still go to heaven if you divorce from a bad relationship? So this is kind of a big question because the Bible is really clear about a lot of different little points within marriage and divorce. The short answer is that typically if adultery is involved, then it's okay to divorce and anything aside from adultery, it is not okay. However, if two people 
are not believers and they, they're married and they don't, neither one of them, um, you know, profess Christ, then they're not believers anyway. Get divorced, I guess, if you want. Um, but if you are a believer and you are um, involved in a marriage, then, that, then you're supposed to stay married unless it's um, due to adultery. However, um, I think the better question to ask is, have I done everything possible within my marriage to follow God's word? Have I exhausted every effort in looking through God's word and finding a way to allow him to heal my marriage? Not, I want to get divorced. Can I find a way biblically to make it okay? The question should be, I have made a covenant before God that I would be married to this person for the rest of my life. So what can I do biblically to honor that promise to God? Not just to your spouse, but to God. Mm -hmm. And it should be taken incredibly seriously. It's, I know that in today's time, 50% or more, whatever, people you know, get divorced, and it is very common, and nobody looks at someone who's divorced and judges them, and I don't anyway, nobody thinks you know, how terrible you are. Um, but as a, as a Christian and as a believer, I want to look at, at what God's Word says and seek the help of, of a professional, someone who is also a believer who can guide you in exactly what God's Word says in your circumstance. And I truly believe with all of my heart there is not a marriage that is beyond saving if you surrender yourself to God. If you quit blaming and worrying about the other person and ask God, what can I do to make this different? Especially if both parties are willing to do that. Then, then I just, I've seen it over and over and over again. And Jeff and I have been very honest with the church from the first day you met us that we have struggled in our marriage and that there have been times where we truly thought there is no hope. And every time we get to that place, God's word does bring it back again every time. And he will be faithful. And I know it's, it's easy to sit and listen to someone else's story and go, yeah, but you don't know my marriage. Yeah, but you don't know what I... I do know because we have been there. I promise you we have. And it, you, I cannot say enough about the power of the Holy Spirit and what he can do to change you. Um, so there may be some technical reasons why, yeah, you could probably get divorced, but I think the question should be, you know, now if you're divorced, if it's something of the past, God loves us, he forgives us, he's merciful, and yeah, we can go to heaven. I think he wants to, we need to continue to seek a relationship with him and, and moving forward, do what's right, but anyway, yeah. that's my answer. I don't think, and this is not scripture, this is just me, I'm not even sure you can prove you love someone until you want to leave them and don't. You hear what I just said? <laughs> I'm not even sure you can prove that you love someone until you want to leave them and choose not to. Like, I think that the majority of, there are outliers, but the vast majority of marriages, you can bank on the fact that if you're doing a lifetime marriage at some point during that lifetime, you're going to want to leave. And Love kicks in when you say, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And so it's, I mean, it all boils down to sin. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all a sin issue. It's a heart issue. 
Moses, you know, the history of divorce in the Bible is we get a, a law from Moses that says, hey, if you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. This was just because women had no rights and they would be kicked to the curb and left destitute and forced to go into prostitution or whatever other shady style life, lifestyle. And, and so Moses was, this isn't right. Give them a means. If you're going to divorce them, at least give them a means to live, right? Jesus refers to that <laughs> Moses law when he comes on the scene. And he's like, yeah, Moses said you could have, get, you know, give each other a certificate of divorce, but that was only because of your sin. He says, what I'm telling you is there should be no reason for you to divorce unless adultery is the issue. Because even Jesus knew that's such a wound, that's such a betrayal that not everybody can get over that, right? Uh, Paul follows that up in his teaching, and he's, he's, he's referring to, to Christians who are married, who become Christians, but were already married to unbelievers. And he's like, you should stay married, if, even if they're unbelievers, stay married to them. Now, if they, as the unbeliever, want to divorce you, uh, because you've become a Christian, Paul's guidance is, you know, try to save the marriage, but, but you don't have to stand in their way. You can, you can divorce them in that particular case. Um, but that's really the only allowances that we get for, for divorce in Scripture. Now, you know, we live in an easy divorce culture and, and, and you know, whatever, but again, it's not, am I happy anymore? I've heard people say, yeah, we told each other if they ever got to a point where we weren't happy that we could just call it quits and what, what, well, why did you even get married? Like, why ha- stand before God and your friends and family and make a covenant at all if it was just if you felt like it, right? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's love until you want to leave and don't. <laughs> like, well, I think, too, that the Bible is very clear that a marriage is a, should be a reflection of the relationship that Christ yeah. has with his church. And if we were to imagine is there ever a moment that God is so upset with us that he divorced us? Never. We know that to be true. We know that he's here forever. And it's an unconditional love that says, even when we're not doing our part, we're not, well, he's not committed. He's not doing the thing he said he would do. Well, how many times are we not doing the thing we said we would do for God, right? When we got saved or when we began a relationship with him, but he still loves us and he's still committed to us. So it's, it's kind of going, entering into it saying, I am going to be committed to this marriage, even if he is doing all the wrong things that are completely unbiblical and not what he promised me he would do or vice versa. I am going to be committed to this regardless. It may not be easy. I may not feel like I'm in love. I may not emotionally be there. I may not even be happy in the moment, but I am going to honor that commitment because Christ honors that commitment to us as the example, and we should honor that commitment to our spouse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, yeah. One more thing, too. I just want to throw this in because you have even counseled marriages where people are willing to submit to God's word back from the gulf. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For those and, and of you who didn't beautiful. hear, even through adultery, we have seen people reconcile and move past that and move on. That's beautiful. And that, that's to me, that's one of the most beautiful things in the world. Because I think, as most of us could imagine, that would be extremely difficult to recover from. Maybe some of you have been through it yourself. Extremely difficult to recover from, and to be able to show that kind of grace to another person is is really really beautiful. But uh, again, you know, it's. Like, like Jamie said, it's a sin like any other sin. It's a forgivable sin. You know, we're not, we're not dealing in sins that'll keep you out of heaven or, you know, whatever else. Um, I will, let me just throw this one, one little thing in. I don't know that there's anything 
that potentially threatens the unity of the church as much as divorce in a church. Because we love each other. And, you know, pick any couple in this room, we all love you. And, and then we're all, just like the rest of your friends and family, we're all put in this position to almost pick sides. And, and it, be, it can become this very divisive thing within a church. Um, and I, I think actually that divorce is one of the more obvious calls or, or situations where church discipline should be administered because, not because you got divorced, but because of the threat to the unity of the church. Um, but um, anyway, that's, that's my take on that. And I know, and, and, but I, I will say this, I've also in, you know, the recent years of my life stopped thinking so much in terms of just black and white. Well, it doesn't fit these two criteria that the Bible spells out. So, you know, it's a sin. That's it. Um, every situation I think is a little bit different. I think that the Bible is, is a good guide to follow, but there are, I've seen, I've seen situations of an abusing spouse that will not get help. I'm not going to tell a wife or, or a husband for that matter to just continue to be a punching bag to that person. And, and again, like Jamie said, have you exhausted every effort biblically? Have you exhausted every measure of grace that you can administer to a person? You know, and, and then, but I think it should be done walking with the wisdom and guidance of the church elders. I think you know, we, we, we're happy to guide you all through those circumstances and, and try to give you wise counsel in that. But it's complex. It's complex. Yeah. All right. I'm next. Um, why doesn't God talk so clearly to us? By the way, um, if you we're, we're able to deal with every question that was submitted, I believe. Uh, but if you don't hear your question uh, today, or it was probably dealt with in the last service, and we'll be posting both recordings this weekend. So check those out. Okay. Why doesn't God talk so clearly to us today like He did 2,000 years ago? So I don't know. Ask God. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I think I think it's really easy for us to lose per- perspective when you have this book where it just seemed like God was just like, you know, surprise, God, surprise, God, I'm here. You know, and everybody's like freaking out and fear not, and He's just constantly appearing to people and doing these amazing miracles, and Jesus is walking around people. Like, it's all condensed into this lo- this little book. Actually, it's a pretty big book, but still. But but the what we lose sight of is that's you know, roughly 1,500 to 2,000 years of history condensed into one package, right? And so I'm not so sure it's that God doesn't speak to us with the frequency that, you know, now that he did then. I think, you know, maybe it's a loss of perspective. I, th- I do think that, um, that God reveals himself into, to us in the ways that he knows we'll hear. And just, and, and by the way, just, just because you get to see God in the flesh or, you know, visibly, is not some sort of guarantee that your faith will suddenly be strong. One of my favorite, one of my favorite accounts is when Jesus is ascending back to heaven. He's already bodily risen from the dead, appeared to all of his disciples. He gathers with his disciples on a hillside. He's getting ready to ascend back to the Father. And the Bible tells us, and some of them were still doubting. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like that dude was dead and he's alive and he's standing, he's getting ready to play Superman and, and you're still, and they were still doubting. So sometimes our heart 
just isn't ready to believe even what's right in front of our eyes. Even what's right in front of our eyes. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are accounts in Scripture where you can look to and go, you know, wow, God really showed up in a very visible, very real way. But um, I, think, I think he still speaks to us. I think it's just, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a loss of perspective about it, I think, more than anything. I think we all go through times when we wish, God, couldn't you just speak to me through the burning bush? And it would be so obvious, and I would know exactly what you want or exactly where we're headed. It would be really nice, right? Um, but that is the reason that he um, left his Holy Spirit with us, so that we can have at that inner calling something to kind of nudge us and let us know where to go and what to do. And it's not always easy to decipher. Um, there are times Jeff talks about, oh, I just really feel God this, I really feel God that. And I think, why am I not feeling God? Tell me, you know. Um, it's, it's not always the same for every person. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. But, um, but we do have his promise that he is there and that he always will be there with us to speak to us. And so I heard a sermon, it's, I think it's a really old one, but I heard recently um, from Craig Rochelle, and he was just talking about the time when um, God was not heard in the earthquake and he was not heard in the fire and, you know, all of these things where you're expecting this bolt of lightning and God to speak to you and, and none of that happened, but he was heard in a whisper. And the idea of why is he whispering? I need so desperately to hear and know why is he whispering. I'm in the middle of this storm. I'm in the middle of this confusing time. Why is he whispering? And it said, well, he's whispering because he's right beside you. He doesn't need to scream. He's right there with you. And I just find that comforting to know that even when we feel like we can't hear him, he is there. He may be whispering, but he's there. You know. Yeah. Good. Good. All right, go ahead. Okay, is it all right to create something that is not strictly about God? And so I don't know exactly what the person was asking in this question, but I will say that um, the scripture that came to my mind is from 1 Corinthians. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Um, And I do think it's important that what we do, we do to the glory of God. That does not mean that everything has to be, you know, emboldened in a Bible verse or something, you know, um, but that we can do things that are just loving and kind and gracious and good and positive. And, you know, every song on the radio isn't about God, but there's some really great positive music out there and it's just fine. You know, whatever we do, we can do to the glory of God. And the idea that God is not concerned nearly as much with what we choose to do as he is concerned with who we are. And that the scripture, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if we're trying to decide, is it okay to do this or create that or be this, um, we don't always have clear direction on every little thing that we do as far as is it okay. But God just says, you know, by the renewing of our mind, we will know who, I think we become a different person in Christ, and he's ma- way more concerned with that, our heart condition, than that thing that we do. Yeah. Unless clearly God's word says don't do it. Yeah, I, I, I would say that you don't have to put a Christian label on something for it to be godly. Um, in fact, I think I'd prefer you not to. Like, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Like, like I, <laughs> and I, I counsel a lot of people in this who have like a sense of, 
whatever, a dream or a goal or a sense of vocational calling, and it's like, oh, I really want to do this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it real Christian, you know, whatever that career is, and I'm going to Christian it up, and, you know, I was like, you don't have to, just go be a decent person in that line of work, that's fine too, you know, like if God called you to be a teacher, just go teach, it doesn't necessarily have to be at a Christian school, uh, although there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, if you, if God's calling you to be a musician, it doesn't have to be, you know, K-Love music. It, it, it can be other music or, you know, and sometimes some of the, for me, some of the best music is not the stuff that gets played on Christian radio. It's the stuff that just speaks openly and honestly about the condition of the human heart. And, and, and I think God can be glorified even in that, even if the name of Jesus isn't necessarily used. And, um, you know, I could go on and on and on, but, uh, we, we want to, and, and man, there's, there is this whole industry out there for the Christianizing of everything that drives me nuts. It drives me a little bit crazy. It drives me crazy to go into a Christian bookstore and, you know, right there by the cash register, it's like, you know, you thought you're the mints that you were currently sucking on were good enough, but you need testaments. And, <laughs> And like, really? I need testaments? And like, or I got an ad on Facebook, you know, how they target you with certain ads and stuff like that. And I got, a, it was a workout, <laughs> it was a workout program called Jehovah's. <laughs> so aero, Jehovah Aerobics somehow all mashed together. And, and uh, or I also got another ad about, had this really buff guy and it was talking about, you know, you know, being... I don't know the exact words. It was like being, be, go be a buff, sexy pastor or whatever, you know? And, and, and it was just like, like there's so much, there's so much that's marketed to us as dumb Christians. Just, you know, if it's got a Christian label on it, there are some people who just go, oh, I got to get that. I got to get that. You know, it's like, I, I get, I'm that way about, I used to be that way about Star Trek things. Oh, it's got Star Trek. I'm buying that cereal box. It's going up on the shelf, right? And some of us are that way about our faith. It's like, oh my gosh, it's got a verse on it. Totally out of context, but I love it. And here it comes, you know. What, what, and so I, I just, I think a lot of it, there was a guy who used to do a blog where once a month he would, he would give the Jesus Junk of the Month award, and I loved it so much. But it was just these just tacky, Jesus-ed up, random objects, you know, like, you know, whatever. Uh, but it, I, I, there's a lot of Jesus Junk out there. And just because it says Jesus or, or claims to be Christian doesn't necessarily mean that it's edifying or helpful to us as Christians. So just just be who God's created you to be. Like you don't have to go start a Christian coffee shop. Just why don't you just start a coffee shop and actually start a decent coffee shop, right? And that that would work too. Um, but anyway, that's that's it. Go ahead. All right. Next question: Is it okay to doubt our faith? Does God still love us if we doubt? And the the answer to that is absolutely yes. It is okay, and yes, God loves us, and. It's funny because I was just talking to someone this morning. I, um, in the last year, I have gone through a season of doubt and unrest and kind of mixed with depression and anger and all kinds of weird stuff. Um, I'm coming through it the other side now, but I'm, I'm still struggling some. And it's probably one of the first times in my life since I've come to know Jesus, which was at age five, that I've had those kinds of doubts and struggles. Um, but always at Living Hope, we've been a church that encourages people. This service today is an example of it. If you have questions and doubts, it's okay. We want to answer them, and we want to have honest conversations with you about them. If you don't doubt, 
and you just accept what anybody ever tells you, then to me that's just being gullible probably. And you're likely to believe things that aren't true about God's word. And, um, you know, God's word tells us that we need to be, um, have wisdom and discernment in how we read his word and in how we make decisions. And so it is healthy, in fact, to doubt and try to get to the bottom of the questions that you have and where you're coming from. I recently started meeting with a couple of girls in the church, and we're going to start meeting, I don't know, a couple times a month to talk about the doubts that we've been going through and where they're coming from and what God's Word says about them and try to find our way through this together. And I think that's really important that you do something like that. Find a mentor Talk to one of our pastors if you don't know who to go to. But it's not the doubt that's the problem. It's maybe how you express it or what you do with that doubt that is most important. If you have doubt and you go around telling the whole world how you know horrible Christianity is, well, that's, that's not good. But if you have doubt and you say, gosh, I've got these questions and I really want to know the answers and I'm going to try to find them, then clearly that's, that's healthy. Yeah, I would kind of echo what I said with the divorce question. I, I don't want, I'm not really interested in hearing about the strength of your faith until, until I've seen you survive a crisis of your faith. Like, that's when you can talk to me about how strong your faith is. And I think doubt is part of faith, and it seems to be a part of faith that God is okay with. Like, one of the songs in the songbook of the Bible, one of my favorites, Psalm 13, David writes this. He says, "'How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever?' How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. And then he's expressing all this frustration and anger and doubt. Like, we don't sing these songs in church, right? But here it is right there, in, right there in the songbook of the Bible, just all this frustration and anger and doubt. And then he closes it off. This is the kicker. He closes all that anger and frustration off with this. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It's like God is okay with us expressing that doubt and that frustration, that anger to him. But I think it's healthy for us to always kind of at the end go, okay, I'm just venting God. You're God and I'm puny old me, and I'm going to trust that you know what's going on, even if I don't. And I think that's a healthy posture in faith. It's okay to have those feelings, but, but don't try to put yourself in the place of God. Does that make sense? Don't try to put yourself in the place of God. So that's good. Yeah, very good. I think, too, it's worth noting that our high school ministry that would be starting back up on Thursday nights, Matt does, he and the, the, the guys involved, they're dealing with the doubt that our high schoolers have. And um, gosh, especially when you're in, in high school and you're an adolescent and you're going through what, what these kids do, there are so many questions about how we live in this culture and what all of my friends say is okay and what half of the world says is okay, but the Bible says something different. I don't understand it. What is this about? And those are the kinds of things that, that they deal with on Thursday night. So if you know a high school kid, um, send them, whether they have doubts or not, it's just going to help strengthen their, their faith. So. Yeah. Uh, next question, if the future is already planned and known by God, then how do prayers change anything? Um, so first of all, 
there are actually examples in the Bible of prayer changing things. Um, there is an example of God being just done, had it up to here with the children of Israel once again, and he was done, and Moses pleading with him, you know, please don't, don't destroy us, please give us another chance. And he did, he, he gave Moses and the people another chance, and it was Moses going before God humbly and, and, and asking for that, pleading with him that he, he changed his mind. Also, um, the story that first came to my mind was the persistent widow, um, that there is this, this woman who had an adversary who was not being fair with her, and she wanted justice, and she went to the judge, and the judge basically just didn't have time for her, didn't really care, it wasn't that big of a deal to him, and she continued to, um, I guess, knock at his door in the middle of the night, I don't remember, just on and on and on and on, like, you know, we women are really good at sometimes, on and on and on and on, until he finally was like, if you'll shut up, I will help you. And um, just kind of the idea of correlating that to the fact that, uh, you know, not that we want to, that we would ever annoy God, but that when we go to him and, and ask for his will to be done, by the way, not my will only, but, but his will, um, that if we're persistent and and we continually show that faith, God, I believe you can change this. I know you can change this, and um, ask for that 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 He can and may choose to change His mind or change a situation. Yeah. Not always, but He can. Yeah, it's one of those chicken egg questions, you know, uh, because you know, is God changing His mind if He is all knowing and knew what was going to happen and you know whatever? Don't think about it too hard; it makes your head hurt. But um, but I, but I think that you know the Bible is pretty clear that you know God is interested in in blessing us and answering our prayers to our liking if it fits in with His will, and um, and so we shouldn't be afraid to go before God with requests and and um, and that. But I think I, I think back of you know the story of C.S. Lewis when you know his wife was dying of cancer and his friends. Uh, you know, gathered around him and, and was just trying to encourage him, but they weren't being very encouraging, you know, and he was talking about praying. And, he, and anyway, his response to them was he said, I don't, I don't pray to change the mind of God. I pray because it changes me. And it's such a, such a great principle. that Sometimes our prayers are not necessarily about trying to get God to do what we want. Sometimes our prayers are just an it's just a humble act of submission, again, recognizing who he is and who we are. And if I can get my head around the fact that God is sovereign and he is in control, um, then, then it will be a little easier for me to accept whatever the answer to my prayer is, you know, because I can, I can trust in him in that, and it changes us. So, um, so yeah. yeah, I mean, God is God. We're not. Yeah, he knows everything. But, you know. He encourages us to he encourages us into a relationship with him, and not just a look how great I am and tell me about it all the time. You know, it's not like that. It's a give and take. It's it is that like we read in that psalm. It's 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 the whole rank, spectrum of human emotion that he invites us into with him. And so yeah, I think too just the actual idea of faith. Faith is faith would not be faith if we knew all of the answers in advance to everything in life, you know. And sometimes we do have to step out on faith 
and trust that God will follow through in the end. And it may come to, you know, you're praying in faith that God will answer a prayer in the way that is best for you, even though in that moment it does not feel best or you don't see it, um, just that God is faithful. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, very good. All right, last question. Uh, What does baptism mean? So, um, yeah, baptism is, is another one of those weird Christian things where we put people in a tub of water and get them all wet, and, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to the world, right? Um, but it, it actually, it goes back, there's a long tradition of baptism in Scripture. It, it predates Christianity. It predates Jesus. Uh, baptism was something that was present in Judaism, uh, but they would use it in this really kind of insulting way. So when, if, if anybody from a neighboring country wanted to convert to Judaism, they would uh, kind of say, yeah, you can become a Jew, but you have to be baptized. And it was this kind of weird way of saying, you're so filthy and so dirty, uh, we literally are going to make you take a bath before you're one of us, right? And, and so it was this kind of, it was this weird kind of, yeah, we want you to be a Jew, eh, sort of, this kind of sideways insult, right? You know, and so, uh, but John, John the Baptist comes on the scene at the you know, opening chapters of the Gospels, and, and he's calling the entire nation of Israel to repentance and to baptism, and he's ba- that was basically him going, yeah, you all need a bath. You're all filthy and dirty and, 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 and living lives that aren't pleasing to God. Every single one of you needs to get clean, not just the ones outside of our country, right? And so people started coming in for that. Jesus was one of them. He came and submitted himself to baptism as well. And then this becomes this Christian tradition that whenever anybody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they, they become baptized. They'd be baptized. And so it's not, I always tell people, it's, there's nothing magical about the water. In fact, I mean, different churches do it different ways. We immerse people into the water because that's just because the Greek word is baptizo. It literally means to immerse. And, and so we immerse into water. We think that's what it was talking about in scripture when they were baptizing. Some other churches might sprinkle or pour, but that's fine. We're not going to you know, pick an argument with them or anything. But uh, there's nothing magical about the water. Nobody's blessing this water, uh, you know, whatever. It's not, there's nothing about it. It's just a symbol of the decision that you've made to follow Christ. And, you're, it's, and we kind of treat it as the public launching of your faith. It's you publicly going, yeah, I'm making Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. I'm submitting my life to him. And you're doing it publicly so we all know you're on our team and, and we can fellowship together. And, and that's right. There's symbolism in it. There's symbolism, obviously, of washing away sins. There's symbolism of the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's this, uh, pub, like I said, public launching of your faith. Uh, next week is baptism week. We're, we're doing some baptisms next week, and we're really excited about that. We get excited about around baptisms around here. And, uh, and so if you're new to the faith and you're, you're ready to follow Jesus Christ in that example, then we'd love to talk to you about that this week and, and uh, help you get baptized next week. Or, or if next week's not working for you, we can do it in a different week as well. But just write something on your connection card and turn it in over at the desk and, uh, with a name and a contact uh, number or email or whatever and, and just let us know you'd like to talk about being baptized and we'll definitely talk to you about that. So it's a great thing. So that's it. That's all our questions. Uh, like I said, if you didn't hear your question at, answered, check the podcast for the first service, uh, and uh, hopefully you'll see it on there. But uh, anyway, God is good. We do this because God's not afraid of our doubts. God's not afraid of our questions. We're not afraid of it either. We're welcome. We're, we're, I mean, those things are always welcome here at Living Hope. And so, um, you know, we're, we've all got questions from time to time. It doesn't make you weak or weird or anything. So.
That's good. Thank you, Jamie, for helping today. And that was great. Um, yeah, you can clap for us. Okay. And so, um, why don't you, why don't you close us in prayer? Jesus, we just, um, truly want to express our love for you today and our grateful hearts that you have been merciful in giving and loving to us and that the covenant you've made with us won't be broken. And even when we have doubts and questions and wonder about where we're heading, Lord, that you you welcome that because you want to draw us close to you and you, you want us to find peace with you, Lord. And I pray that you'll help those that are here today just to be able to find that peace. Those that may be hurting, who are struggling with the idea of divorce, who are worried about what's next in life, who are wondering if prayer is going to be answered and we know that you do know our future and that you have our best in heart. And I pray that you'll just bless these individuals. Help us to continue searching and seeking and, and following you, Jesus. Pray that you'll go with us throughout our week and be blessed. In your name we pray. Amen.